We weren't upper class, but it was a posh ceremony. Wedding bells rang out from the Norman Chapel. My little sister carried the bride's white dress train, the refined crowd cheered, the happy couple chuckled, the photographer clicked, confetti rained. And the father of the bride gave a reserved little golf clap. And as I looked at my own father, he also gave a reserved golf clap. But not me. For in that moment, sometime in November at 1989, I would not imitate any polite wedding day custom. I would not imitate any upper class manners. I would not imitate any clapping father, not even my own. Instead, I used my six-year-old hands to cover my face, and I cried bitterly because I was about to go to the wedding reception with my parents in our boring hatchback, whilst my little sister, that adorable bridesmaid, got to ride all the way in a vintage Rolls Royce. I don't remember what happened next on the car ride to the wedding dinner, but since my father was a British father, I imagine he told me to stop crying. And since my father was also a good father, I imagine that he told me to stop being selfish. But also, since my father's own spiritual mentor was that father of the bride, I imagine that he told me to start following suit and to start imitating him as he imitated the father of the bride, and to start as soon as we got to that posh wedding reception. And so I did. In fact, the only other lasting memory I have from that day is sitting around a large table at Gawsworth Tudor Manor and seeking to imitate my father's every move at that exclusive wedding banquet. And so my father folded his serviette and laid it upon his lap. I folded my serviette and laid it upon my lap. And when my father spooned his, his soup away from himself, I, I tried to spoon my soup away from myself. Indeed, even when a delicious dessert was brought forth and I watched my father decide to forego licking the chocolate sauce covered plate clean, even my six-year-old self decided to forego licking the chocolate sauce covered plate clean. Well, I wonder if you have a similar story to share. I wonder if you've ever had to decide whether to duplicate a fellow diner. I wonder if you've ever been in a culinary conundrum as a selfish child when you've had to imitate a model of mealtime manners. Well, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we read of an equally childish and selfish church who likewise needed to learn some courtesies. And if you've been here for any part of this series, that will come of absolutely no surprise to you. For the first century church in the Greek city of Corinth were childish and selfish when it came to the sermon, that was chapter 1, and they were childish and selfish when it was time to go to court, that was chapter 6, and they were childish and selfish when it came to be married, that's chapter 7. And so were childish and selfish when it came for dinner time. And so what did this childish and selfish church need at dinner time? Well, just like the six-year-old me, they, they needed a fatherly figure to take them in hand and to say to them with love and sincerity, imitate me. 
And the final verse, at the end of this kind of three-chapter section, all about eating, we see that that is exactly what their father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, tells them. For chapter 11, verse 1, look down there, be imitators of me. And yet in that final summary verse, we learn that their final imitation was not finally to be of Paul, but of Christ. For chapter 11, verse 1 in full, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In the same way that my father finally wanted to imitate his own spiritual father, that father of the bride, at that posh wedding banquet. So Paul ultimately wants his own spiritual children to imitate who he is imitating, the great Lord of all banquets, the the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, if you want a two-word summary of these verses before us this morning, a good simple summary would be imitate Christ. In fact, that is the banner over this whole section and the very title of our sermon this morning, Imitate Christ. For I believe that this passage highlights for us uh, uh, many general ways in which Christians are to imitate Jesus, wherever they may find themselves. However, as I've also said, there is a very specific way in which Christians are to imitate Jesus when they are at the dinner table. And so this morning, there are two parts to this sermon. You can see them in your sermon guide uh, over the page. For in the first part of this sermon... I want us to see how we are to imitate Christ specifically when at the dinner table. And the second part of this sermon, I want us to see how we are to imitate Christ generally wherever we may find ourselves. So firstly, point one this morning, question one, how do we imitate Christ specifically when at the dinner table? Well, you may be surprised to discover that unlike when you're at a formal British uh, wedding, which has lots of rules about following the host, and who you sit next to, and what uh, you eat, and and how to eat it even. Uh, Following Jesus at the dinner table is actually less about law and more about license. For quite clearly, the first command that Paul gives these, these Corinthians is eat all food. Indeed, that is our rather happy first sub point that I see certain teenage boys scribbling down with great earnestness. Eat all food. For verse 25... Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Likewise, in verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you. Quite simply, those who imitate Christ may eat anything. Which maybe sounds a little surprising or strange to some. For in the time of Moses in the Old Testament, animals were divided, weren't they, into unclean and unclean animals. And as a result, God's people could eat beef, but not bacon, and lamb, but not lobster, and cod, but not crocodile. And God's purpose in prohibiting certain foods was to make the point that God's people, Israel, were to be a holy nation state, separate from the pagan nations all around them in very visible ways. But when Jesus came... Jesus not only died to break down that that, that, that division between Israelites and and non-Israelites and indeed every nation, thus making a people of, of every tribe and tongue, 
But when Jesus came, he explained that unclean foods were, were just a picture of every citizen of every nation's deepest problem. We'll just listen to Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 7. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And that, if you are new to Christianity here this morning, that that is why, in contrast to other religions, Christians eat all food. That's why Christians are not like Jews. They can be found at Nashville's finest restaurants enjoying oysters. And why Christians are not like Muslims. They can be found at Edley's Barbecue eating a, a pulled pork sandwich. Christians are not like Hindus. Some Christians may even be found enjoying a burger from Wendy's. Now, now that, of course, does not mean that Christians sneer at those who don't eat such things. Or that Christians can't be vegans or, or vegetarians if they want to be. Indeed, because Christians recognize that their bodies ha have been given by God, Christians are hopefully those who rightly limit the amount of Wendy's triple baconators that they consume. And yet Christians may eat all food, for they know that the triple baconator is not really the issue. Because Christians imitate Jesus and they say, what goes into the mouth is not really the problem. The problem is what comes out of the heart. Indeed, Christians say with all honesty, my defilement, my defilement which destroys life comes not from the substances which go into me, but the sins which come out of me. Accordingly, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, you're not really seeking to imitate Jesus, not very much anyway. Well, I wonder if you would nevertheless admit that too. Did you see that the reason why your life is often ruined and the reason why you are often so unattractive is not actually because of what you eat or don't eat, and so what the fitness blogs tell you, but actually the reason why you, just like me, just like me, are often so unattractive to others and even yourself is because of the evil things which come out of you, almost involuntarily, almost like vomit, thoughts which are often polluted by lust and coveting, words which are often poisoned by, by slander and envy, even your best actions which are often soiled by the most unattractive of pride. And if we, our friends and our family, see that unattractiveness in ourselves, then how much more is that true if you are willing to admit that there is a God who knows all things about you and is all holy, who sees beyond that defiled fruit of a life that is impure, and into a defiled heart where the root of your problem and mine lie. Friends, have you ever considered the truth of Jesus' words about where your issue really is? 
Have you ever considered that the only worthwhile religion would be one that gave you not old rules, but one that gave you a new heart? My friend, Christianity is wonderfully that. For Christ's people are those who are honest enough to admit that actually it is their heart that is unclean. And seeing that they cannot cleanse themselves with any religious restrictions or divine diet, the holy meal that they feed upon is Christ himself. For in his love and compassion and mercy, that was what Jesus was most concerned about clearly. That is why Jesus came to die. And that is why Jesus calls all people to eat just one thing. John 6, Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who imitate Christ are to feed upon him as they come to him in repentance and faith and so come to God and find life. And so as for all the other meals, well, Christians may eat all food because they have been cleansed ultimately by the body and blood of Jesus. Accordingly, related to that, secondly, we note here that Christians imitate Christ by eating with all people. Did you see that? Subpoint one, uh, eat all food. Second subpoint, eat food with all. Do you know what the, what the main complaints was about Jesus in his day? What was the one thing that, that people didn't really like about him? Well, if you read the historical accounts, it's that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. What got the religious elites of the day really mad was that Jesus enjoyed a glass of wine with the wicked. Indeed, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus ate and drank with two types of people. At one, uh, Jesus ate and drank with, obviously, his believing disciples, true Israelites, who followed him, who listened to his teaching, those who were clearly loyal to God's kingdom. And two, Jesus ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors, those who did not believe, those who had selfishly rebelled against God, those who were loyal to the kingdom of the Roman Empire and not the kingdom of God. In fact, the only people that Jesus didn't really eat with at all were those who wrongly thought that they were in God's kingdom, those who thought that they were in when actually they were not because they refused Jesus and his teaching. And so in imitating the Lord Jesus, that is exactly who Christians are to have meals with and are not to have meals with. If you remember back to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians no longer to eat with a man who thinks of himself as a brother, but refuses to obey Jesus' teaching about serious sin. Do not even eat with such a person says Paul, who wrongly thinks that they can belong to Jesus' kingdom and yet reject Jesus as king of their lives. But with someone who's a sinner and tax collector, with someone who is not saying, yes, Jesus is my king, but I don't listen to his laws, someone who understands themselves to be an unbeliever, someone who knows themselves to be outside of God's kingdom, then just like Jesus, Christians can enjoy meals with such people. Indeed, Christians should eat food with such people. For verse 27, if one of the unbelievers 
invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, go and eat. Christians do not pull out of social occasions either out of fear of what is on the menu or out of fear of those who might be around them at the meal table. Christians are not to live in some kind of religious bubble. At dinner, Christians may eat with atheists and ayatollahs. At the coffee shop, they may sit next to the homeless and the, and the hoarders of wealth. In the lunch hour at work, they share a sandwich with the, with the racist guy with the magma hat on or the rebel girl with the rainbow lanyard. Because the true church is not childish, but is in Christ. We are not those who opt for some kind of synthetic holiness, childishly thinking that, that corruption can, can kind of be passed like cooties and godlessness like germs. Instead, we don't just tolerate meals with unbelievers, but just like our Savior, who came not for the healthy but for the sick, we are to have meals with unbelievers and to share food and to share good jokes and just like Jesus, to share ultimately the good news of him. So my fellow members of Edgefield Church, I wonder if you are imitating Jesus in that way. Well, wonderfully, I know that so many of you are. Indeed, I'm often encouraged by the likes of Katie Gale and Fernando and Stephanie Munoz and Lynn and Jim Henderson and many, many other people in our church who are models of eating with unbelievers. But for the rest of us, let, let me ask you, as I ask myself, when was the last time an unbeliever invited you to dinner? Friends, are you sufficiently at ease, just as Jesus was, with unbelieving neighbors and colleagues so that you might take the gospel to them? Or could it be that, that you are fearful of hanging out with such people? You're fearful that somehow that will tarnish your, your right standing with God when it is Christ's body and his blood pictured in that meal that we've just taken that is your righteousness. Certainly some members in Corinth were like that. They needed to grasp that when it came to mealtimes, they could eat all food and they could eat food with all. Which is true. Except in one particular scenario. For subpoint three, eat all food with all people except when the food impairs anyone's conscience. That's subpoint three, except when the food impairs anyone's conscience. You see in verse 28, Paul gives one particular situation when it would not be right to eat the food that's put in front of you. If you look with me to verse 28, uh, Paul says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Paul has been telling these uh, Corinthians that, that it does not matter what food they eat. But here he says it does matter if that food is, is making a statement Accordingly, as we tie together this passage and the previous uh, chapter 8 that Shaka preached to us, there are two scenarios in which Christians don't eat, and both are to do with a conscience. Uh, firstly, in verse 28, as you can see, uh, Christians are not to eat when they might impair an unbeliever's conscience about God. For if the unbeliever in the city of Corinth was to understand that there was nothing wrong with, with offering food to an idol a false god or goddess, then they should not be supported in that belief. 
Indeed, for the Christian to partake in eating that food when that statement had been made, essentially they would be saying, don't listen to your conscience about worshipping the one true God who made the world and everything in it. It's absolutely fine that this God-given meat was sacrificed to a non-existent God or goddess. And so in that particular scenario, a scenario which may occur if you travel to Southeast Asia, where an unbeliever highlights the link between uh, their idol worship and the food, the Christian is to then abstain in order that their host's conscience might be pricked, in order that their host might ultimately be saved from sin. And secondly, the only other time that a Christian is to abstain is when the Christian's conscience is weak because they think that a certain food is still unclean. And in that scenario, the the Christian is not to impair someone's conscience on an issue that doesn't matter to their salvation. So, for example, uh, in my second and third year at university, uh, I lived uh, with a friend named Charles. Uh, No, it wasn't that one. And Charles Charles was a a Christian and and a Messianic Jew. Uh, Wonderfully, Charles knew Jesus was the promised Messiah as he read through the Old Testament. Wonderfully, Charles trusted that Jesus had taken his sin and shame, and yet Charles still really struggled with the notion, the notion that, that as a Christian, he, he could eat all foods which the Mosaic law forbid. And I and my uh, Christian housemate, John, uh, we thought that Charles was wrong about that. And so what did John and I do about it? Well, after reading uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 8 to 10, we decided, surprisingly, not to bake a load of pork pies or to wave prawn sandwiches in his face. No, no, we love Charles. He was our brother in Christ. Verse 32, we ought to give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And so our undergraduate fridge was sadly bacon-free, at least until Charlie went home. Because in that scenario, we, we didn't want our freedom to eat to impair Charles's conscience when it didn't matter because Charles was already saved. And so in summary, Christians eat all food and we eat food with all except when the food impairs anyone's conscience. And and that was the specific issue at hand for the Corinthians in chapters uh, 8 to 10. And that is how you and I, if we're Christians specifically, imitate Christ when at the dinner table But what about when we get down from the table? Are there any more general principles here that we learn as those seeking to imitate the Lord Jesus? Well, yes. Because this passage, I believe, also has a lot to say about how Christians are to imitate Christ generally. And so second major heading, how do we imitate Christ generally wherever that may be? Again, if you're looking down, you can see that there are three subpoints which answer it. And the first of these is enjoy God's fullness. Enjoy God's fullness. How do we imitate Christ generally? We imitate Christ when we enjoy everything given by God. What was the main reason in chapter 10 that the Corinthians could eat whatever they wanted? Well, in verse 26, we see... That as as Paul quotes Psalm 24, a psalm of praise, he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In short, God has created a world full of blessing and given us every good gift in it. Thank God. 
And so the Corinthians were not to panic about what they ate. Rather, they were to partake with thankfulness, verse 30. Because they imitated Paul who said, verse 30, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Can you see the general principle that, that, that Paul is reiterating once again in this letter? Paul reminds them that an imitation of the Lord Jesus is not seen in a dearth of God's gifts and much grumpiness, but actually in, in diving into God's gifts and much gratitude. For in chapter 7, when the, when, when the foolish people in Corinth were saying that not making love to your spouse showed true spirituality, Paul replied, do not deprive each other. Enjoy the gift of sex in marriage. And so similarly, Paul says here, do not deprive yourself of the full dinner menu because the ultimate cook of every meal is God because the whole earth is his kitchen cabinet and he loves to give good gifts to his children. A cup of coffee on the screened-in porch, the plate of fish and chips on the beach, the glass of port on a cold Christmas evening, the, 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 the ice cream sundae on a, on a summer's afternoon, or whatever your favorite food and drink might be, all that comes from God's fullness. He made every food and every drink for our pleasure. Now, now of course, we, we are able, aren't we? We're able to sinfully abuse each, whether in evil uh, gluttony or evil drunkenness. And for that reason, some Christians might avoid certain foods and drinks, and that is fine. Indeed, that might be very wise. But generally, we are to enjoy the fullness of God's banqueting table, thanking him for all that he has given. In fact, in imitating Christ, wherever that might be, we are to enjoy the, the, the fullness of God's gifts everywhere. We are to enjoy the, the, the fullness of God's gift of nature and enjoy the feeling of the sun's warmth and the, the side of the sea's tranquility. We are to enjoy the fullness of God's gift of sound, the resonance of piano and cello and song, the spring sounds of bat on ball, the joy of hearing our grandchildren's laughter. We are to enjoy the fullness of God's gift of work and the equation balanced, the novel concluded, the final brick placed in the wall. Friends, there's so much, so much to thank God for, for the earth is, is filled with his gifts. In fact, I often think that one of the worst things, one of the very worst things about being an atheist must be the discomfort of really enjoying something and yet having no one to give thanks to. But that's not the case of the Christian. The Christian may enjoy all of God's things and praise the one who gave it. And yet sometimes we don't, do we? Even as Christians. Either we forget to thank God, or oddly, we refuse enjoyment because for some reason, like some of the Corinthians, we believe that it may be more Christ-like to abstain. In 2006, uh, almost 20 years on from crying, about not being able to go in a vintage Rolls-Royce. I actually had the opportunity to buy a vintage car, a British racing green convertible, no less. Uh, one of my buddies, who's a huge lover of cars, was going to sell it to me at a very, very low price. And at first, I loved the idea. 
I, I thought of the joy of taking the corners at top speed, for the joy of driving along the English countryside, the joy of, of feeling the wind in my hair when I still had hair. But eventually I said no. And my reason, well, for me, it was because, well, that's just not what really Christians did. Christians purchased sensible cars. And so instead, I went up to Scotland with a little joy and bought for the same price a joyless Toyota off a joyless old lady. <laughs> because in all honesty, I feared people questioning my Christ-likeness, presuming that I'd spent money like an unbeliever. Friends, this passage seems to say the very opposite. It does not call us to greed. It does not call us to self-indulgence. But it does call us to enjoy the fullness of life and then to thank and praise God for it. And so maybe for some of us here this morning, maybe we need to be a little bit more like the six-year-old at the wedding and a little bit less like the aloof British man, becoming those who do more than a little reserved golf clap when we experience God's goodness and becoming more like those who lick the chocolate sauce-covered plate clean and praise God for every morsel, to enjoy the abundance of all that the Father has given us, saying, just like my six-year-old says to me sometimes, Dad, that was the best. Thank you. For again, when we do, we're imitating Christ. For Christ was the epitome of this, was he not? For Jesus thanked his Father for his every blessing, every meal in the gospel. Jesus is there, and he's saying grace. Indeed, even at the very meal before his death, we read this morning that Jesus took the time to thank God for it. Even though that, that food that, that God had provided for him would be the food that would give him the sustenance to walk the hill of Calvary and die the death that we deserved. We're to imitate Christ and we're to enjoy God's fullness. But as we reflect upon that picture of Jesus that we read of in, in his very last moments, uh, Jesus surrounded by his friends, Jesus enjoying bread and wine, and, and firstly, thanking God for it. Secondly, as we consider what happened after that, that first Lord's Supper, we also see that Christians, imitators of Christ, empty themselves for others' good. The second sub-point. How do we imitate Christ generally, wherever we may be? Empty yourselves for others' good. At the start of this section in, in verse Verses 23 and 24, if you look at the top, Paul quotes what the, the Corinthians were saying. Uh, perhaps it was the motto on their, their church fall retreat t-shirts, or perhaps it was the first line of a, of a chorus that they sang regularly. Either way, it was a very popular line that went like this, verse 23, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. Essentially, Jesus paid it all. I can do anything I want. And were they right? Well, in a sense, they were right, for the law was fulfilled in Jesus' perfect obedience. Christ had canceled the legal debt that stood against them. They were free. And because the civil and the ceremonial customs of Israel culminated in Jesus Christ, they were set free from the law, particularly they were free to eat whatever food they wanted. And so as I said before, could they technically, or rather they could, they could technically 
Invite their newly converted uh, Jewish friend over and start glazing a ham and munching on prawn sandwiches. And they could technically be invited out to an unbeliever, a a pagan friend's house and, and grill out and enjoy some meat that had been sacrificed to the Greek god Apollo. For the meat didn't matter. For now they knew that the earth was the Lord's and everything in it. And so all things are lawful in that regard, but verse 23, not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Some Jewish converts might still struggle with pork and prawn sandwiches. Some Greeks may think that Apollo burgers are praiseworthy because Apollo is praiseworthy and not some made-up mass of marble. And so in those cases, verse 24, If you're imitating the one who emptied himself for us, you will not seek your own good, verse 24, but the good of your neighbor. Likewise, verse 32, look with me. You will give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. Corinthians, he says, Corinthians, in every situation, stop asking yourselves, what is the most enjoyable thing I can possibly do? And start asking yourselves, what is the most helpful thing I can possibly do to ensure that my neighbor will stand before God at the end and be saved? And so at times, Corinthians, you must empty yourselves. You must empty your fridges. You you must empty your relational capital You must sometimes go without something good for someone else's good because that is what Paul did and ultimately that is what Christ did for you. For Philippians chapter two, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He emptied himself or humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death that everyone might be saved. True Christianity True imitation of Jesus is not Jesus pays it all, I can do anything I want, but Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And so my friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder what that emptying means for you. I doubt that for many of us you see in in, in Nashville in 2023 that that emptying will mean emptying our fridges. I doubt that for many of us that that emptying will mean awkwardly asking for the veggie burger at the neighbor's barbecue. But what freedom and pleasure will you give up so another is not offended? What would it mean for you to empty yourself for another's good, to empty yourself for another's salvation? For some of us, it may mean emptying ourselves of our hometown comforts, just like Paul, so that we can serve on the mission field, and tell people about Christ. Or emptying the bank account so that the gospel can go forth in another place and people can be saved. Or emptying the me time from the calendar so that we can pray more for the salvation of people in our city. For others of us, it may mean emptying the number of friends we have at work because we're willing to speak to a colleague about the danger of some idol of our own day for the sake of their salvation. Or emptying ourselves of selfishness at home 
because we really want a family member to be saved and so we do not claim our rights, but we soldier on in Christ-like humility and grace. Or emptying our own song preferences at church because we want to help older saints or those from a different culture. For those imitating Christ, it could mean all manner of things in all manner of situations. And so how do we know when to do it? Well, I like how the writer David Jackman describes how we're to imitate Christ through talking to ourselves. For in commenting on this passage, Jackman writes, by nature, we used to talk to ourselves and we once said to ourselves each day, why should I not do what I want? But by grace, we now say to ourselves each day, I wonder how I can best serve another so that they might be saved. So how do we imitate Christ generally? Wherever we may be, we enjoy God's fullness, we empty ourselves for others' good, and very fine, last few minutes, we endeavor to glorify God in everything. Final point, endeavor to glorify God in everything. You see, as we seek to imitate Christ, there is this mentality which stands behind that those twin actions of, of thanksgiving and sacrifice. For there is a motivation for emptying ourselves that, that goes beyond a, a blind determination to just be like Jesus. Indeed, at the beginning of verse 31, as Paul kind of recaps this whole three-chapter section, he begins with that summarizing word, so. Verse 31, so, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is the ultimate way we are to imitate Christ? Amid the fullness of gifts and the need to empty ourselves, we are to consider what will bring the most honor and praise and fame to God. For John chapter 12, we follow Jesus who said, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' purpose and motivation in death Jesus' troubled soul and the very emptying of his life and the seed of his beautiful life falling to the ground was not finally the glorious fruit born in the salvation of you and me. No, his ultimate purpose and motivation in the evacuation of his own good was the glorification of God's name. Accordingly, friends, amid the treadmill-like activity of the Christian life, amid the the discipline of praise to God each morning, amid the denial of self or other salvation that we feel every single night as we lie down, the glory of God is to be our greatest impulse. God's global fame is the Christian's highest principle and the reoccurring melody line when we have plenty and the reason for our every sacrifice for each other's good. The motivation for how we live in every situation is the glory of God 
And it is not a grin and bear it version. A grin and bear it imitation of Christ. A glory of God because that's just what we have to do. It is a genuinely delighted imitation of Christ because we see the fullness of God's beauty and we long, we really long for others to see that glory too, no matter what the cost to ourselves. Yesterday, I got a new king. I didn't pledge allegiance to him because I have another. However, I did enjoy watching King Charles's coronation. But my favorite moment as I watched was not the glorious crowning itself or the glorious music of Handel which played or, or even that the gloriously large red feather that Princess Anne wore to block Prince Harry's view. <laughs> no. My favorite part of all of yesterday's glories was seeing the actions of an ordinary bystander as Charles processed to Westminster Abbey. For one bystander right at the front, who must have queued overnight in the pouring rain to get the great position that they had, to praise that the coming king, but just for a moment as he passed, as the royal stagecoach passed them by, in that moment, despite doing everything to attain that position, they nevertheless decided to lift up a young child, lifting them up and thus blocking their own view of the king, lifting them up and thus emptying themselves of the opportunity for the king to look upon them and smile. Why did they do that? Well, I guess their motivation in that moment was not driven by their own feelings or desires but was driven by their greater desire for more people to see the glories of the king. That child was not heavy to that bystander, but light. That that child was not a burden to hold up, but a joy. When the child squirmed and kicked at them, and so blocked their own view of the king or failed to appreciate the, the scene of all that was before them, the bruised bystander just said to them, look, the king is coming. Look, the king is coming. Because that bystander was motivated most by the great glory of the one who already ruled and one who would very soon wear the crown for all to see. Friends, when we appreciate the glory of God, when we meditate upon his great beauty and power, we will not struggle to thank him for all that he has given us or empty ourselves so that others might see him better. Let's pray that we do that now. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to imitate your Son. Father, we ask and pray that you would help us to imitate Christ at the meal table, that we would rejoice in our freedom, that, that we would know our ability to eat all food comes from the fact that your Son paid it all. 
Father, we pray that we would eat food with all. Our Christian brothers and sisters, but also we ask and pray that we would eat with those who don't know you so that we can share your goodness and ultimately the goodness displayed in your son. And so help us when we do that to be sensitive. And Father, in imitating your son, we pray more generally that you would, you would help us to enjoy your good gifts. We thank you for them. Father, we pray that we would be disciplined in our thanks to you for everything you give us each day. And yet in all that that you have given us, help us to be willing to give it up for others. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be willing to empty ourselves, to think what would be best for another's salvation, to ultimately endeavor to strive for your glory, to love your beauty and character and gospel such that it would not be a burden but a joy to lift up others and to proclaim your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.